Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. This month's issue of the magazine is published in association with law firm Sidley Austin. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight, and this month, we're asking, what's next for Third Point Partners' campaign at Sony? Why does Muddy Waters Research think Burford Capital is overvalued? What is the key to Mantle Ridge's success? But first, a look at shareholder activism in the technology sector. Our cover story explores the top trends in this space. Technology companies have been a constant focus for activists, with over 100 targeted worldwide each year since 2014. In the second half of 2019, Elliott Management and Starboard Value disclosed stakes in telecommunications giant AT&T and cloud management provider Box one week apart. Elliott, Starboard, and small cap specialist VX Capital have become the most prolific in the space, targeting a total of 59 tech companies since 2013, according to Activist Insight Online. Joining us today is Activist Insight Editor-in-Chief Josh Black, who spoke to a number of sources about activism in the technology sector. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. Why are activists attracted to the tech sector? Okay, so the tech sector is a big space. Uh, There's a lot of different types of company within it. That said, one of the popular spaces for activism has been the software uh, sector, um, particularly software as a service, which has developed as an industry that has strong recurring revenues, uh, low operating costs, you know, it's very scalable, produces a lot of cash flow, and activists, above all else, like cash flow. So they've targeted that space a lot. You know, it's an area where they can strip back unnecessary costs. There's a lot of private equity interest, so buyouts are common. And then you have the kind of more sluggish, less dynamic areas of the tech sector, such as telecommunications, where you often have these firms with quite dominant market positions that have either diversified or haven't been run uh, optimally, perhaps because they have had a monopoly position or something close to a monopoly. Uh, new low-cost entrants have been able to come in and eat away at their margins. And as a result, an activist will take a look and say, Actually, we think you should strip away some of the costs and position yourself to to be a world beater again. So are there certain types of campaigns that we see more often than others in the space? Yeah, there certainly are. Um, M&A has always been a popular demand. Uh, We saw uh, Zayo Group uh, was bought out by private equity earlier this year after campaigns by Suchum Head and Starboard. Uh, In fact, pushing for the sale of tech companies is is more common uh, than pushing for the sale of other types of companies among activist investors. So that's something we've seen a lot of. Buybacks and dividends, the sort of balance sheet activism has ebbed and flowed. Very famously, there was a campaign Apple uh, starting in 2013 to get them to use some of their cash, which was then mostly held offshore and couldn't be repatriated um, because of tax reform. That was probably in some ways the high watermark of of balance sheet activism in the tech sector. It does happen from time to time, but uh, has become less prominent. We certainly see 
some attempts to break up tech companies. eBay and AT&T this year are examples of activists looking at non-core assets and saying, what is the reason for owning this? Um, eBay, four years ago, owned PayPal and Carl Icahn pushed them to spin it off. PayPal has since done fantastically well. Uh, eBay has kind of chugged along at a pretty sluggish pace. So we certainly see that. More broadly, we, we see a lot of shareholder proposals on governance in the tech space, pushing for more independence on the board, more transparency. You know, we see some environmental and social activism in this space as well. I think you wrote a piece earlier this year about employee activism, specifically at Amazon and Alphabet. That's something that will be interesting to watch. Jana Partners did a campaign at Apple, I think it was last year actually, um, pushing for parental controls on uh, iOS devices and you know we haven't seen that replicated too many times but it it seems like an interesting area to look out for in future particularly with this sort of talk of a tech clash in Washington DC and and other uh, antitrust capitals. One type of campaign that I think is worth mentioning even though we don't see it very often is the sort of transformational uh, or pivot campaign. Microsoft uh, was targeted by Value Act in what seems like ancient history, but was was an unusual and highly successful operational campaign. Microsoft had been chasing all sorts of avenues that really hadn't paid off for shareholders and ValueAct came in at a time when uh, the company was ready for a leadership transition and a transition from selling Windows, you know, in these upgrade packages that were really easy to skip one or two to actually the software as a service model where you pay for subscriptions. Uh, It's something uh, ValueAct had experience with Adobe and really paid off. But, you know, that's a very difficult uh, transformation for an activist to be part of. It requires a, a real part partnership with management and um, you know we don't see it every day. What are some challenges that activists might face at tech companies? Uh, well, certainly the governance at tech companies is is unusual, not in every case, but this is a sector because it is uh, so new and, you know, so many of the companies are new. You often have the founder involved in some capacity. Maybe they're still the CEO. Maybe they've moved uh, into a non-executive chair role. You know, maybe they just own a lot of shares. Uh, so sometimes you see those founders actually running activist campaigns. Uh, sometimes you see them as real counterweights to an activist. An activist might have to actually push to oust a founder. Many tech companies have dual-class shares or other governance provisions, and and it's a sector which is more accepting of those kinds of defences on the basis that you need to protect your intellectual property and take a long-term view. Size and valuation, I think, is another one. You know, a lot of tech companies, because it's a hot sector, you know, valuations are inflated by private sector unicorns and investor expectations. You know, these are asset light cash flow positive firms for the most part. And so, you know, it can be really hard to buy in at a discount. Are there particular situations or things that we should be looking out for in the coming months? There's a number of ongoing campaigns that are pretty interesting. Um, eBay's CEO stood down over the summer, uh, citing 
disagreements with the rest of the board, uh, which has two activist nominees on it. And there's an ongoing strategic review uh, looking at the future of StubHub and some other non-core businesses uh, that are relatively unrelated to its marketplace. So we could see some asset sales or uh, listings there. AT&T is clearly the big one. Elliot has come out with a, a proposal to sell some assets, whether that be Direct TV, you know, maybe parts of Time Warner. Uh, they've been slightly less explicit about that. The company is clearly under pressure. Uh, it's been reported that Randall Stevenson, the CEO, is retiring next year. A lot of focus will be on his heir apparent, John Stankey, uh, whether Elliot is on board with that or can be persuaded about that uh, is unclear. AT&T is due to release some details of its newest HBO streaming service. So in a very crowded field, that will be a real test for the company. It really has to stand out from the field there or face accusations that it's sort of too slow and, and too out of touch to uh, to compete in, in the entertainment area. And then I think we'll be on the lookout for discounted software firms, you know, anything that's really taken a tumble as a result of a bad quarter or, um, you know, even accounting or regulatory issues. Symantec was was one of those companies that had this kind of governance slash accounting problem. Starboard came in and it was a complicated situation to to clear up. Not an easy sale, but, you know, something that looked quite lucrative. And I think we we could well see more private equity activity in the space, whether that is friendly M&A or you know activist supported M&A or you know becomes uh, slightly more hostile we'll just have to wait and see. Thanks for being here Josh for our next report. Everyone who knows Paul Hilal describes him as a man who does his homework. Sources interviewed by activist Insight Monthly describe his punishing schedule of research, intellectual honesty, and openness to new perspectives. Perhaps those are the key ingredients that make his firm, Mantle Ridge, so successful. Hilal started his activist career working for former college roommate Bill Ackman after a spell as a technology sector investor. The three campaigns he led in his decade at Pershing Square Capital Management were some of the firm's finest. Canadian Pacific Railways netted over $2 billion in profits. Air Products and Chemicals produced a total follower return of 94% in the time Pershing Square was in the stock, and Ceridian handed the activist four board seats. Hillal left Pershing Square in 2016 and again teamed up with Hunter Harrison, the railroad executive who helped lead Canadian Pacific's turnaround, to repeat the play at CSX in January 2017. Shares in CSX rose 22% on the day the campaign became public. Even after Harrison's death in December 2017, the stock has risen another 30%, leaving Hillal on course to collect a healthy payout when the five-year lockup on his capital expires either in late 2021 or early 2022. Mantle Ridge's latest campaign at food services company Aramark has been no different. Shares rose 10% on May 30th, the day Reuters reported Mantle Ridge was exploring a bid to take the company private. It jumped another 11% on the day of trading after Mantle Ridge disclosed a 20% stake in August. Aramark CEO Eric Foss has since abruptly announced his retirement, and Mantle Ridge settled with the firm for six seats including one for Hilal. It also helped appoint John Zilmer as the new CEO. It is unlikely Hilal's work will end with 2019. Activist Insight Monthly understands that the activist stake is locked up for five years in a single-purpose vehicle, 
like its investment in CSX. Third Point Partners has targeted Japanese tech giant Sony for the second time in six years. But unlike in 2013, the activists believe Sony should position itself as a leading global entertainment company by spinning off its image and sensing solutions unit, as well as selling its majority stake in Sony Financial Holdings and a bouquet of publicly listed companies. Third Point estimated that these moves would allow Sony to plug a valuation discount of around 50%. Yet Sony decided to keep the segment after an extensive analysis of Third Point's proposals. We expect it to not only further expand its current global number one position in imaging applications, but also continue to grow in new and rapidly developing markets such as the Internet of Things and autonomous driving, Sony wrote in an open letter on September 17th. The firm also said it did not want to ditch Sony Financial, although it noted that the subsidiary was undervalued and that increased shareholder returns, better governance, and more transparency could help. The company did, however, agree to sell its 5% stake in Olympus back to the camera maker. Third Point's relatively swift exit from Sony in 2014 has not helped the activist's reputation in Japan. Third Point's presentation and shareholder letter are not available in Japanese, but founder Dan Loeb did speak to some local press. Also, Activist Insight Monthly understands that members of his team visited the country nearly every month this year. Sony's stock is up 25% since rumors of Third Point's involvement surfaced in April. The activist might choose to wait and see how the company performs before deciding whether to push its thesis further. Carson Block the founder of Muddy Waters Research, told Activist Insight Monthly that his firm was aware of Burford Capital's, quote, suspicious accounting for nearly two years before it published a 25-page report on August 7th, bringing the stock down 46% that day. Block's short-selling entity unveiled seven methods it believed Burford used to manipulate its performance ratios to, quote, egregiously misrepresent the state of its overall business. The smoking gun, Block said, was Burford's case with Napo Pharmaceuticals. Muddy Waters noted that the litigation financer allegedly disclosed Napo as a concluded investment in its 2013 annual report and claimed a total recovered of $15.8 million on a $7.4 million investment, even though the case had not actually concluded. What's worse, Napo actually lost the trial against Salix Pharmaceuticals in 2014, allegedly prompting Burford largest shareholder, Invesco, to lead a bailout of the investment. Muddy Waters called the situation a stranger-than-fiction example of manipulating performance and profit metrics. Burford, however, said Muddy Waters' report was false and misleading, contending that its cash position and access to liquidity was strong and its returns robust. Moreover, the firm said the trading of its shares showed evidence consistent with illegal market manipulation. The company alleged that a large amount of sell orders was created and canceled in the minutes before Muddy Waters tweeted its short position in the firm. It also suggested that the tweet may have been worded in a way that created an algorithmic sell-off in the stock, an accusation Muddy Waters staunchly denied. The situation prompted an investigation by UK market watchdog, the Federal Conduct Authority. Burford also later published an academic study into the alleged market manipulation and applied to the London Stock Exchange for trade data, including the identity of the individual
individuals behind the canceled orders. Burford has since attempted to pacify its investors with governance changes. It even addressed the biggest concern highlighted by Muddy Waters, which noted that the company's chief financial officer was the wife of its founder and CEO. She has since been replaced. Chairman Peter Middleman, who also committed to resigning from the board, later said, Companies are owned by their shareholders, and when the shareholders speak, it is the role of boards and management to listen. And now for some stories that did not make it into the magazine. Elliott Management has invested in quite a few companies last month, not least telecommunications giant AT&T. Paul Singer's hedge fund is urging the firm to dispose of assets, reduce debt, and return cash to shareholders. It might also demand a say in AT&T's management composition and the successor of CEO Randall Stevenson. AT&T's chief executive previously defended his strategy and likely successor John Stanky, saying some of Elliott's recommendations don't make much sense for the company, while others do. It's a mixed bag, he said. Elsewhere, Elliott reportedly built a 3% stake in truckmaker CNH Industrial, which is controlled by the Agnelli family. The company, which is listed in New York and Milan, is currently in the process of breaking up its agricultural and commercial segments. Elliott is thought to see value in the split. The activist also reportedly invested in timeshare company Hilton Grand Vacations and wanted to find a buyer. Even before Elliott's involvement, activist Insight Vulnerability predicted the firm would be ripe for activism. Activist Insight Vulnerability argued in December that an activist could push to halt the company's growth strategy and demand more share repurchases. In other news, Legion Partners Asset Management called on beverages company Prima Water to refresh its board, contending that a new independent chairman and the replacement of long-tenured directors will help eliminate the firm's conflicts of interest and improve accountability of both management and the board. The 9.1% investor warned that it believed Primo might take half measures like adding a director hand-picked by executive chairman Billy Prim now that the activist made its demand public. We do not believe these half measures will go far enough to help Primo perform optimally and reach its appropriate valuation, Legion said. Chris Kuyper's activist fund first disclosed its Primo holding in May, saying it was engaged with Primo's board on a variety of corporate governance and compensation issues. At the time, a source told Activist Insight Online that Legion saw the potential for a margin expansion over the next several years as the company raises prices on its refill machines and implements cashless payment options. In response to Legion's demand, Primo's lead independent director, Susan Cates, said she believes the firm is well-positioned to create long-term shareholder value. We have engaged regularly in dialogue with our shareholders, including Legion Partners, about further refinements to our strategy, board, and operations, she said. Our discussions with many of our top shareholders have been thorough and valuable. We intend to continue to have constructive and meaningful discussions with our major shareholders. That's all for this month's episode of the Activist Insight Podcast. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you want something discussed on a future edition, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana Duray. Thanks for listening.